I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to the Media Business Podcast, which is brought to you by Media Business Insight, the publisher of Screen International and Broadcast. I'm Chris Curtis, the editor of Broadcast, and this month we're taking over the feed with the first part of our 60th anniversary celebrations, supported by Pact and Screen Skills. You're about to hear from two TV titans. Stephen Lambert launched transformative formats for Channel 4 as the creative lead for RDF, before doing it all over again and finding international success with his new indie, Studio Lambert, which has just celebrated 10 years at the top. While Sir Peter Bazalgette kick-started a revolution in lifestyle programming in the mid-90s before introducing Big Brother to the UK as a senior figure at Endemol and subsequently going on to become chairman of ITV. Recorded at the Soho Hotel in front of a live audience, settle in for an hour of funny stories and forthright views. I thought it might be good to tell people why Baz and I know each other. In the uh, early 1980s, we were both working for the BBC Documentary Features Department. Um, I wanted to be making serious documentaries in war zones, but Baz had already seen the future. He was editing a BBC Two series called Food and Drink, and he knew that it was the returning popular factual programme that uh, was, was where the future lay. For six months, I was assigned as a somewhat reluctant director on Food and Drink. I remember Drink. the expression on your face. <laughs> But he was very good. You felt rather humiliated, <laughs> didn't you, by the attachment? It was, it was a good learning experience. <laughs> so go to Somerset and make a film about uh, ice cheese. <laughs> well, I did. I learned, I learned how to make clear, entertaining, short films for food and drink, for which I'm very grateful. We were very grateful, too. <laughs> anyway, decades later, or a decade or so later... We were both in the indie sector. Baz was at Endemol, I was at RDF, and then in 2008 started Studio Lambert. And then, of course, Baz left television effectively, went and became Sir Baz, and the great, a member of the great and the good, um, running the Arts Council, running the English National Opera, and now, of course, chairman of ITV. Um, well, I think you're meant to ask me a question, but let's, let's, let's talk about the scripted boom and what effect yeah. this is having on the unscripted uh, programming. Well, let, let's start with your company then, your current company, because you've moved into drama. How many dramas have you actually got commissioned at the moment? Three. OK. Do you still put as much effort into developing non-scripted formats as you're putting into developing scripted Definitely. projects? Definitely, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we, we have a 
a strong scripted development team and we have a strong separate um, unscripted development team. And then we've also got people in Los Angeles developing specifically for the American market and in unscripted. And what a Moving into drama in the way you have, into scripted, how have you done that? You know, did you buy, did you bring, put some writers on retainer to yourself? Did you buy the rights to some no, books? We hired a, I mean, I hired a great head of drama, Sue Hogg, who had previously run drama at ITV. She then had gone to the BBC for several years and had been responsible for a whole slate of, of, of drama productions there. And she brought with her, uh, at an early stage, Three Girls, which was... You know, a huge triumph in terms of yep. both ratings and and yep. and critical reception, and was our first yep. show. And but the idea was to do commercial drama, and uh, we're, we're we're just completing production of a big drama series that's principally funded by Amazon, but also um, well, by. Are Libby. you allowed to tell us about it? Sure, it's called Go the on. Feed. Go on, tell it's us about it. It's a near future where our phones are inside our brains. I thought that was already the case with you. <laughs> And um, the f yes, we live in the near future where the f the feed is 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 everywhere and on, and everybody's doing it. But the family that run it and had invented it, they start to have a problem because the feed starts to go wrong. It's based on a novel, but that, uh, that's a fantastic premise, actually. I, I, no, I'm serious. I really like to see it. It's a brilliant idea. So, who's the writer? It's a woman who was one of the main writers on The Walking Dead for the last few years. And she came up with the scenario? No, it was a book that we optioned it. Ah, we approached her. and um, Very good. Uh, I mean, the exciting thing about American writers is that somehow, because of the way in which they get picked up and dropped, in the sense that they're trying so many things at once, it's easier to get, in some ways, if you've got the right project, it's easier to get A-list um, American writers in some cases, although they're pretty expensive, um, than uh, the British A-list writers. Because the British A-list writers are just so booked up and it's yeah. so hard to get yeah. them. So with non-scripted, your whole business model is to come up with ideas that can return, returnable series, that's your great phrase. But The Three Girls isn't a returnable, is it? Is it, is it returning? No. No. So that was, I mean, you needed to break your duck in drama. Exactly. But broadly speaking, you'd like to come up with returning drama series too. Of yes? course, yes. And The Feed is intended to be a returning series. Right. So it's ten episodes initially, and then if everybody watches it. And can I just ask you one more thing then about what you've just said about drama? This fantastic, amazing demand for drama, high-class drama, uh, by Netflix and Amazon Prime, as well as all our um, domestic broadcasters continuing to invest in it, um, and indeed even cable channels in America investing in drama when they didn't before and so on. So how are you dealing? That's an opportunity for you, but how are you dealing with that, that competition for talent? Well, it's really hard. I mean, I think that's the biggest problem. For, there's so many drama producers, and they're all chasing the same talent, and I think that however much the buyers talk about wanting to back new writers. It's very hard to get new writers commissioned in this, compared to the ease, the relative ease, with which one can get a show away if you manage to get one of that handful of, I don't know, 10, 20 A-list writers that yeah. people will, will definitely buy yeah. from. And um, we, we all struggle with that. I mean, it's... it's it, we're lucky that, um, for instance, Sue has this great relationship with Nicole Taylor, who wrote Three Girls and who now is doing a BBC series for us 
that's a, a, a proper fictional, I mean, when I say proper fictional, The Three Girls is obviously a proper drama, but it was based on truth and told the truth. Uh, I mean, the characters were, were, were not fictional characters. Mm. We're now, she's now doing her first fictional series, um, a six-parter, and because of that relationship that Sue has with Nicole, we're able to get her into the fold. But the best writers either have very deep and long relationships with a handful of producers, or increasingly they're setting up as their own producers, like two brothers. Um, so it's, it, it, is, it is, is a challenge, and there are so many drama startups, and they can't possibly all survive. I mean, I just don't see how they're going to be able to find the writers that people will feel confident about going with. Unless, of course, so much drama gets ordered that people start taking risks on, on, on less experienced writers. And, of course, in the end of the day, everybody has to get their break somewhere. You, you know, the, 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 the 20 A-list writers are going to die one day and there will be other people replacing them by then. Yeah. How about Do you want I to name anybody specifically? Who's <laughs> <laughs> How about ITV? Do you think ITV is a place for new writers? I'd like to think so. Um, let's remember, though, it's, a, a, it's the owner of probably the last simultaneous mass audience in the country. And so Kevin Ligo and his colleagues have to commission shows that, that they're fairly confident are going to get a mass audience. Um, uh, but um, I think the possibilities are, um, if you take a series like um, Time Wasters on ITV2, which I'm particularly fond of, um, uh, and uh, if you think of some of the possibilities there, you think about... Um, some of the contemporary drama that even a mass audience can deliver. Um, I'm not saying it was done by a completely new writer, but I, I, I particularly enjoyed Cleaning Up recently, and I thought it was a, a very contemporary-feeling series, which it was great to see on, on, on the network. <coughs> so th there are opportunities, but I think one particular opportunity um, for all broadcasters going forward, and this is right across Europe, includes Germany, Italy, France, is that as broadcasters move into more online distribution, both AVOD and SVOD, there's going to be more of the commissioning of the sort that Netflix makes. And some of that commissioning is of series whose primary function is to drive subscriber growth rather than viewing numbers, although obviously, ideally, it would do both. I'm thinking of a series like Netflix at the moment, Sex Education, which I'm particularly fond of. I think it's a brilliant series. Uh, apparently, they say it's had 40 million downloads in its first uh, few weeks. You don't download on Netflix, you stream. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, impacts, let's call them impacts. 40 million impacts. Um, anyway, you may uh, 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 stream, I download. Um, um, but uh, it's had about 40 million impacts, they say. Now, you know, their statistics are not and not everybody understands quite how that, what, what, on what basis they're quoting it, but it was clearly very popular for them. But I, it's that sort of series with a young sensibility uh, that I think we'll see more of, actually, when there's more online distribution from broadcasters right across Europe, and I look forward to that. But do you think something like sex education would uh, sit happily... I mean, sex education is a very interesting example of so much of the talk about the, the, the SVODs and Netflix in particular, but also Amazon, is to what extent are they creating programming, commissioning programming, that is particular to the territories in which they want to have a strong presence? 
Um, obviously, initially, they were essentially American services, and they've put an enormous amount of energy and money into moving into a global player where they're creating programming for particular territories. And what's interesting about sex education to me is that that's a show um, which is a British cast set in a British school, but it doesn't look like a British school. It's a British school where they have American lockers and they play American football and they yeah. don't dress in uniforms. And it, that's, I mean, I find that actually fascinating. That well, they, it, that it, is still, it is still because of its subversive humour. It is still a quite, I think, British take on the high school movie. But I agree with you, it is curious. It's shot in Wales, actually, isn't it? But it's curiously stateless, which I think works for them and that probably under, uh, um, uh, dictates or explains why they've had such success with it because they've just given it that tweak that makes it sort of more international. It's, uh, and it's worked. So it's a dangerous road to go down in one sense, which is that, um, you know, you know, uh, that in the food world, in the food world of gastronomy, that dreaded phrase, international cuisine, which means food from nowhere pleasing no one. <laughs> and um, you, want, you don't want to get into the Euro pudding world, but actually, which is where we know we were 10, 20 years ago with drama that was compromised. But actually, um, I mean, actually, I'd, listen, I've been watching a couple of the dramas that S4C's been making. There was a very dark one called Hidden. Have people watched mm. Hidden? Yes. And then the other one more recently about the solicitor who goes, it disappears. What was that one called? Um, you know the one I mean anyway. And um, that's um, interesting because it's, uh, you know, it's not of one culture. In that it's partially in Welsh with yeah, subtitles. Yes, I know. But isn't also that interesting? It's cheaply made, that too. Cheaply made, but not, not obviously cheaply made, called. but it had a low budget. What? Keeping Faith. Keeping Thank Faith, you. exactly, with that wonderful actress who also turned up in Cold Feet the other night, I noticed, uh, as, as the girlfriend, brief girlfriend. Um, but, uh, no, it's, it's, but it's fascinating, isn't it, that we wouldn't have dreamt that things with subtitles would, would have a wide audience. Uh, but uh, Keeping Faith was a huge hit on iPlayer, I believe. Yes. Uh, and um, anyway, so it's so interesting what you can do and not get into the Euro pudding mess. So we're much more sophisticated about how we make good drama which involves more than one and possibly two or three cultures. Now, I'm going to ask you a question now. Okay. I want to know whether, um, with all this emphasis on drama, you say you're spending as much time developing uh, scripted, uh, unscripted formats as you ever were. Is the demand for them as strong as ever, or are they suffering? Are they eroding as, there is, as we feed, uh, feast on drama in all the schedules? I don't think that they're eroding. I mean, I think that I think unscripted formats are incredibly prevalent in, 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 on, on our schedules. I mean, we're, we're, we're ITV, I'm a Celebrity, Dancing on Ice, um, X Factor, um, BBC, The Apprentice, Strictly, Channel 4, Bake Off, Gogglebox. Um, um, I mean... I can't, and, and Netflix, I mean, Netflix has only just got going in Unscripted, um, but already they've got a great success with, I mean, to the extent that one believes what the great successes are, because they keep everything secret. But um, Nailed It, um, uh, Queer Eye. Um, Which uh, a very fine company ITV Studios <laughs> makes for Netflix, I understand. You, you, we, well, it's good that you keep up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you tried to catch me out earlier, and you almost succeeded. Um, and um, so I think that, and we're making 
um, many versions of the circle for Netflix. I mean, that's a big, interesting move from their point of view because it's a, right. it's 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 them moving into um, a competition <coughs> reality show that's quite unlike what they've been doing before. Okay, now if we think of all the shows you've done, um, Faking It, Wife Swap, Gogglebox, and so on, uh, Undercover Boss. Yeah, I think that's good. Not the right well, title. Good. We're going well. Busking it here, chaps, but I don't want to offend him. What happens in the Stephen Lambert development room when people start to develop an idea and think up an idea? And what's sensibilities on their mind? And, and, and I'm going to exemplify the question, and you have to spare your blushes here, because I've said this to you before. Gogglebox, which is a show I absolutely revere and love, and, and, and the casting of it is brilliant. Um, there was a particular edition, and I've said this to you before, of Gogglebox at the time of the um, 2015 general election. So uh, that week, um, everybody thought it was going to be a hung parliament and Ed Miliband might even be prime minister. And there was a question time in Leeds where they brought the people on one by one and Nigel Farage swore at the audience and said they were all lefties put there by the um, BBC, the liberal-minded BBC. Um, Cameron, the audience didn't seem to particularly like him, but they seemed to quite respect him. And Ed Miliband half fell off the stage, which wasn't actually his fault, but he suffered from it in terms of image. And all of that went on in, in that, in that programme, and that was on a Wednesday or Thursday. That was one of the clips you showed to your goggle box, and you've got like, what, how many couples? About 10 couples probably taking part. In that one edition of Gogglebox, the, the result of the general election was in that programme. That programme went out on a Friday and the general election was the following Thursday. And they all reacted to the show by not exactly saying, I like Cameron, but, you know, he looks like a leader. Not liking Farage attacking the audience for asking questions, because that would... And thinking Miliband was hopeless for falling off the stage. They were just being honest. That's how they felt. The whole result, the fact that Conservatives were going to win, was in that programme. You had touched a, a, a profound chord of what people were thinking and got a snapshot of it. So, how does that happen from the beginning of the process? What are people sitting around a room saying to each other? Oh, God. Well, I mean, <laughs> ideas come from different sources, and um, the, 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 there's no doubt that there are... I mean, coming up with a good idea, or the starting point of a good idea, it sometimes comes from me. More often than not, these days it comes from Tim Harcourt, our creative director. Um, and then we, we 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 kick them around. We, I mean, initially when Tim suggested uh, the, idea, the initial idea of Gogglebox, I was a bit sceptical because um, when the BBC, when Channel Four started, Jane Root and Michael Jackson did a show called On the Box, and they had the idea of putting a camera inside televisions, and it was an interesting sociological experiment that showed most of the time people weren't actually watching television when the television was on. They were arguing, they were making love, they were ironing, but they weren't watching television. They weren't doing all of those things at once, <laughs> were they? Because it could be quite dangerous, couldn't it? Um, so initially we thought, oh, yeah, I said, you know, it has been sort of done and it's not that interesting. And then it was the realisation as we talked more about it that it was actually an opportunity to just find an amazing cast of characters and the television was just going to be a weekly prompt for them to react to. And, and you were asking, was there a kind of theme for the sort of ideas that we have mm. developed a lot in the past? Mm. I, I think the, the sort of core theme is, 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 is a clash of values. Um, 
we are often looking for ways of bringing together people who have got different values and, and uh, um, ideas about how the world is. I mean, whether it's the, the obvious example would be something like Wife Swap, where two families you discover uh, are their own separate civilizations, and the idea of living in this other civilization is a huge, uh, dramatic, and kind of involving process. Um, but if you look at something like Secret Millionaire or Undercover Boss, or even Faking It, it's fish out of water. It's people putting people in situations where mm. they're exposed to people who've got completely different values to, the, to, to mm. themselves, and they go on a journey <coughs> of realizing about the, the, this difference. And, and I think one of the realizations with Gogglebox was realizing that you could do a show that was about people with different sets of values, um, but they didn't actually have to meet. Uh, they just had to have a shared common experience, and mm. the com shared common experience was, 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 was watching that week's television. Yes, because it always reminded me of the royal family, actually. It's yes, sort of, was like, of course. But, of course the royal, the royal but, but on that point, the royal family, which was a brilliant show, and you know, we were so delighted that Caroline and, and uh, Craig uh, have agreed to, uh, for many voice. years, do the voice. Yeah. Um, but, but the royal family isn't about a clash of, of values. It's one family, very funny, very interesting situation. But with, with, with Gogglebox, we get, we get at least 10 or a dozen different kinds of families yeah. reflecting a variety yeah. of values. And, and the interesting thing about Gogglebox for me, or one of the interesting things, is the way in which people from very different backgrounds will sometimes react in a very similar way to what they're seeing, but other times they act in a very different way. Yep. And, and that variation is interesting. So, um, just before you ask me your next searing and abrasive <laughs> question, because you're all, uh, such a searcher for the truth, Stephen, I've noticed. I, um, I just ones. want to quote to you oh, yes, the what. best single comedy line ever from the royal family, which was brilliant. I think you'll all agree it was fantastically written. It was a genius series. Um, I think it was written by Caroline O'Hearn. In one particular program, the grandmother was still alive. And the, the youngest son um, brought a girlfriend home for the first time. And she, she was a veg vegetarian. Vegetarian? What is it? How do you... How are you going to... They were all discussing how they were going to deal with this thing, this vegetarians coming round. What, what we... And finally the grandmother came up with a solution. She said, let's feed her thinly sliced ham. <laughs> and I always thought, that is simply the most delectable line of comedy I have ever heard. It's just so brilliant. <laughs> 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, I'm going to ask you about Big Brother, because it ended. Oh, really? Must you? Well, I, apparently we agreed that this is, oh, this right. is the kind of things okay. we would cover. Uh, Sherry, I want to go back to the beginning. What was it like when you first saw Big Brother on Dutch television and uh, that that inspiring man who was your boss told you, I have this new show on Dutch television, I would like you to take it to Britain. What was... Well, when, I wrote you... a, when I wrote a book about Big Brother, my extremely disobliging assistant dug out a memo I had sent to John de Mole in 1999, it was the year before it went on to UK TV where I'd said, um, I don't think we can sell this in the UK, but if we can, it'll only go out on Sky Television. <laughs> Which was pretty ironic, because when I did come to sell the show, and it was already a hit in Germany and Holland, when I offered it to Liz Murdoch at Sky, she never replied. <laughs> so it bloody well wasn't going to be on Sky Television, because they weren't interested. Um, but, you know, um, it was a programme that is so run-of-the-mill now, and it's such a basic technique of making TV, just having a fixed camera rig and asking people essentially to sort of excel themselves, but be themselves, um, that it seems ridiculous now to get het up. Or but at the time, it was a very shocking idea that, you know, got So it caused um, a fatwa in Bahrain. The show in Bahrain. Uh, got closed down by a, a mob of mullahs, and the CIA came in and took the, because um, Bahrain's a naval base, so the CIA were, had um, um, surveillance on it, and they came and rescued the production team before the, um, before the priests arrived to, to try and close the house down. It caused a constitutional crisis in Malawi. Uh, in Mexico, about 200 Catholic families own all the big companies and therefore do all the television advertising and they had a pact between them to withdraw all the advertising and try and kill it off. In Germany, the regulator tried to stop the show on the grounds that it infringed the right, the post-war constitution of Germany gives every citizen a right to privacy for reasons we'd all understand. And the 72-year-old uh, regulator in Rhine-Westphalia said, um, well, this is an infringement of the people's privacy. And they tried to explain to him, well, yes, but they're voluntarily giving it up. <laughs> so, you know, can't... No, no, it, we have to, can't allow it. So eventually there was a compromise in Germany, and there was a room that, that didn't have cameras on in it for one hour a day. Consequently, the uh, self-advertising people never went in it. <laughs> um, but it was that controversial. Um, but, what, but you saw the Dutch version, which was very different to the British version. Did you look at it and say... Um, well, oh, I'm going to make a much better version. It or? wasn't that different. Uh, the main difference was uh, the commissioning editor at Channel 4 was Tim Gardam. And uh, it was Tim who actually said um, they're only doing uh, evictions every two weeks. And that's not brutal and you know, not enough action going on. Let's do an eviction every week. So that was the main difference, actually. Hey. Yeah, that was Tim. Tim was the person who then, uh, on a sort of two, two series later, had to judge. Um, there was an, shall we say, an amorous <coughs> incident. <laughs> and he had to judge whether the edit of it, this amorous incident, so, Bishop, close your ears. 
he had to judge whether this amorous incident was um, uh, was appropriate to go out on television at ten o'clock or whatever time it used to go out on Channel Four, and so we had to send over to him the edit of it, and it got sent over on to Channel Four, and it was meant uh, uh, how technically this happened, but it went anyway out onto the main Channel Four ring main across the whole building and through reception. <laughs> there was this event, this shall I say liaison. <laughs> And all work in Channel 4 stopped for half an hour while everybody down tools and watched this uh, extraordinary sequence. And I remember Tim saying, I only want one edit. You have to edit out one expression. We said, what's that? He said, I've looked at his face. You have to edit out the rictus of pleasure. <laughs> it's a very Tim, you know, Cambridge educated, you know. Very, very Tim Gardam phrase. Look for the rictus. Later became a principal of a college at Oxford. Rictus of pleasure. Sounds like a sort of book. Doesn't it? About um, some literary book, you know, literary criticism. The Rictus of Pleasure by Tim Gardner. <laughs> but it's over now. At least um, on Channel 5 they've stopped buying well, I it. I think it's probably going on all, all over the world still, isn't it? it I don't is. know. Somebody yes. from Endemolshine would tell us, I'm sure. Um, look, uh, the show is now 20 years old. It started in 1999 in Holland. Uh, the natural life of a format is, as you know better than anybody, the hit format will peak probably between the years of about five and eight. Then it'll start to decline. If it declines rapidly, it's off. But if it declines gently, yes, it's still quite a property. No, no, and Big Brother, I think, is still quite an earner for for Endemol. Should I say yes? Sure. It's, it's off in the UK, but uh, I think it it runs in other places. Yes, I mean, I I think one of the extraordinary things is the way in which. The unscripted shows, particularly you see this on American broadcast television that started in the early 2000s, that they're the ones that are still going. I mean, it's so hard to launch a new yeah. show in, so, on, uh, on broadcast television. The hits are still Survivor, um, Big Brother, The Bachelor, um, you know, Amazing uh, Race. Uh, uh, These uh, shows have been going forever and ever. Yeah, yeah. People's inertia is extraordinary. And yet you see that... The, 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 the viewing figures for all the networks, the broadcast networks in America, have just completely collapsed. And the only things that they are still watching, but still at much, much smaller numbers than before, uh, tend to be the, uh, the, 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 these old war horses. Well, um, or indeed popular, fresh, uh, wonderfully produced formats is another phrase that springs to mind. Um, but um, it's true, and there's an, there's a, if I may add to the phenomenon you're talking about, um, quite a lot of programmes series formats that were axed as the whole broadcast scheduled cake, the total broadcast cake's growing in many ways because of online distribution, but the scheduled cake is getting slightly smaller every year and more rapidly in America than here. Um, and so there were shows that were cancelled for getting six or eight million viewers that are now coming back and doing very well. And uh, Dancing on Ice has been revived on ITV. Um, who Wants to Be a Millionaire has been revived on ITV. Uh, Love Island is actually a revival from 2004. Mm. And so, there, uh, and, and the advantage of those shows is that they have recognizable brands in an era where you know, we have more choice and we're more distracted than ever before. So yes, so does that make it more difficult then to get more uh, well, factual uh, format I mean, hits away? Yes. I mean, it's, the hard thing is the second series. I mean, if you're lucky and you push and you've got an idea that you believe in, it's, you know, not always, but sometimes you get the shows on air. Getting the second series, that's hard. I mean, the number of shows that I've thought that's going to work and we're going to get a second series and it doesn't happen mm. is more than I care to 
think about that. Well, you'll just I, have to buy a broadcaster, Steve. <laughs> what about ITV, though? And what about risk-taking generally? Do you think that... Um, I mean, do, do you feel comfortable about how much risk ITV is willing to take, or do you think it's quite a cautious network? Well, I, I said earlier, no, I don't think it's a cautious network at all. I think it's a very creative network, but I think it is serving a simultaneous mass audience, which means it's taking decisions that would obviate uh, some sorts of programmes that wouldn't get a mass audience. Um, look, I think the overall uh, point to make here is that we are very blessed in the UK and arguably in the US by having more broadcasters than any other country in the world who are saying, please bring us new ideas. You, you think it may be slightly less now than before or not, I don't know, you can comment on that. But that's why, I mean, I did point out a few years ago that most countries we used to sell formats to when I was at Endemol uh, used to say, bring us a tried and tested format, bring us a hit, bring us a format. If every country said, bring us uh, formats that are already a hit, there would be no new formats. So the fact that uh, there are broadcasters and online distributors in this country saying bring us new ideas, both in fiction and non-fiction, is a wonderful thing. And it's the reason that we've got such a strong sector. We've got brilliant independent producers. Um, John McVeigh there knows, because you've done the numbers, you know, the exports of content uh, uh, from this country have gone up out of all recognition in the last 15 years. Uh, but that wouldn't happen unless you had lots of people saying bring me new ideas, let's put money into new ideas and pilots. So let's hope that goes on. And I think ITV is part of that, so I, I don't think it's fair to say it doesn't take risks. No, and I, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I think that's what's extraordinary about being a producer in Britain. You, we are in the best place in the world for selling a paper idea. Um, you know, we, we, and it's why you, one is in a very strong position going to America as a British producer because they're looking for something where they can see tape. And if you've made it here, even if you've just made the pilot or, um, and, and, and the show isn't, isn't, isn't been broadcast yet here, they want to see some tape and you can make a, a sizzle with, with, with your British show and show it to the Americans. And that's an enormous jump up compared to yeah. it um, makes a big being difference. an American producer having to go with a paper idea. And it's how we got to this position of having more than half the trade in entertainment formats because we had this um, test bed or this nursery uh, in this country. How confident are you in the future of public service broadcasting? This is a, actually a very important and rather serious subject. I'm going to talk about the need for it before I talk about how confident I am in it because I think content with a public purpose, which I think most people in this room have produced and have consumed and believed in is probably more important in the internet era than it was before the internet era. I think of the internet era as the era of uh, the, or the conduit of rumour, gossip and paranoia. When I look at content with a public purpose, which is best exemplified by the public service broadcasters, but you'll find it on other channels as well, and you'll find Sky, for instance, doing some very interesting programming with a public purpose. I think it has three key functions. The first is probably the most important of the three, and that's democracy. Uh, you cannot have a functioning democracy without informed citizens, and you can't have informed citizens unless they can go to trust in reliable sources of news and information. And the only difference between now and 25 years ago is that the internet era unleashed a demon or opened a Pandora's box, and it's like sort of, Goebbels, you know, Goebbels is fantasy. You know, Goebbels only had the radio. Goebbels said he could not have done what he did in the 1930s Germany without the radio. Imagine what Goebbels would have done with the internet. Well, 
um, you know, it's happening. And we're all subject to f fake stuff all the time, most, uh, some of it with malign intent. And that makes trust and reliable news and information that's properly resourced and so on um, more important than ever. I was particularly pleased two nights ago on ITV News, uh, the 10 o'clock news programme. Alistair Stewart was hosting it two nights ago. And they were reporting on Damien Collins' report from the Select Committee, which was essentially about um, a sort of rather existential issue that every country is facing, which is how do you regulate the internet? We all know we have to regulate the internet, but the question is how do you do it? And either Alistair or the new scriptwriter had written in a line about the importance of trusted news and information. And I do think that BBC and ITV News should probably spend some time online and on television reminding people what it is. I don't know why my kids would necessarily know how BBC News and ITV News is, what the tenets are, how the journalists are trained, what the standards are. We need to promote news and news needs to explain itself and remind people of its value. So that's something that's the culture thing, you know, doesn't require much unpacking. But if I take the ITV example, plenty of examples on other channels, you know, uh, Emmerdale and Coronation Street, you know, six times a week in each case. If the country's thinking about and arguing about gay marriage or immigration, you will find those issues exercised. Those programs are part of a national conversation. And whereas I would um, applaud Netflix and Amazon Prime. Uh, I would repeat what you said that Sex Education, which is a damn fine series, is somehow stateless. And uh, they've made some wonderful series teaching us how to make drugs in the Arizona desert or sever bo bodies on Scandinavian bridges. And these are wonderful and they greatly <coughs> enrich what consumers can watch and the entertainment we get. But programs about us, for us, made by us, as something that are very important for any country with a positive national conversation and a functioning culture. And then the third thing is economy, and I won't unpack it now, but content with a public purpose is part of the investment in the creative economy, and the creative economy is one of the most important sectors in our economy going forward in the future, in the knowledge economy, the creative economy. So for all those reasons, content with a public purpose is critical, um, and it can be perfectly healthy if we find a way of funding the BBC beyond its current 11-year charter, whatever that way is, and if we allow ITV Channel 4 and Channel 5 to continue with their model of being advertiser-supportive, which means not interfering too much in their model or bringing in overbearing rules about what can and can't be advertised unless there's damn fine evidence for reasons for banning advertising, and it requires in the multiplicity of distribution mechanisms and platforms a country to say if we believe in content with a public purpose then people need to be able to find it and that means certain rules about prominence not just on Virgin and Sky but on um, internet uh, connected TVs as well so we've yet to work through that but that's important as well so I am confident if we crack the things I've just talked about uh, that we can still have a future where we have a strong tradition of content with a public purpose. Well, that was a very good speech. <laughs> um, how, how good a job are we doing, though? I mean, with, with news, I worry that, you know, with, I look at Brexit and I think we haven't done a very good job.
Um, yeah, just unpack that for a moment. So why? I mean, well, what were well, your? How do you? Two polls I read recently. Yeah. Thirty-five percent of people thinking that no deal meant that we would stay in the EU and there would be no change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you could ask those sorts of questions at any given time in our history. Of course. Who's the prime minister? I, you normally only get asked that when you're, you're concussed in A&E, actually. <laughs> and actually, nobody knows anymore. So everybody, everybody, the nation is concussed at the moment, isn't it? Um, so I, I, I'm not too, con you know, that a, a single question where people don't know the answer. Sure, I was just an example. I'd be more I concerned. I mean, I, I worry that the whole Brexit thing, I thought that the, 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 the Channel 4 Brexit um, drama, that scene where uh, Craig Oliver is, is, is complaining about the fact that, you know, we put on Nobel Prize economists talking about what a disaster this is going to be, and you'll put on some complete lunatic against right. it. So let's, let's, just, let's just unpack that for a minute. So you're saying that you found the, for instance, the coverage of the referendum campaign unsatisfactory. I did, yes. Yeah. I didn't think it was yeah. investigative enough. So I, I think, think there's it... some quite profound things. Sorry. No, we'll carry on. I think there's some quite profound things going on there. Uh, and I'm not making a point here that's either pro-Remain or pro-Leave, by the way, because both votes were, there are perfectly respectable reasons for voting either way. There's no point in being metropolitan and Soho about this and saying, oh, you know, there's only one answer. There isn't only one answer. But when you ask a binary question, be careful what, what you're doing. Our parliamentary system has not been about binary questions except when you make a choice between parties at a general election. And our Burkean system is to elect MPs to, as representatives, to use their intelligence and wit to work together to come up with solutions in the country. And if we don't like how they're performing, every four or five years we can get rid of them. It, it isn't our system to ask a binary question which can be decided on a simple majority, the nature of which is divisive. And, you know, the referendum, incredibly divisive in this country. It divided us by geography. It divided us by age. It divided us by wealth. It was profoundly... Um, unsettling experience for this country to go through that and to continue with that uncertainty now. And then, only after you think about those things, do you think about, well, how was the media meant to respond to that? And I would agree with you. I think the media fell down. And th this is how I think they fell down. I think they said, well, we're impartial. So it, it's a binary question, and it's yes or it's no. And so we'll give six minutes to the man who says yes and six minutes to the woman who says no. That's not the role of brilliant independent media. The role of brilliant independent media is independently to inquire and investigate. And whether you're talking about Project Fear from the Remain side, which was ill thought out and certainly wasn't demonstrated immediately for the two years after the referendum, though we told we were going to fall off a cliff. Whether we will now is another matter. We were told immediately, not true. Or whether you're talking about that 350 million number, brilliantly uh, written about in James Graham's uh, play on Channel 4, which I, I thought was really good. I really enjoyed it. Uh, on the bus. This was not properly interrogated. So we did fall down on the job. But we fell down on the job because we were sort of, we were sort of taken over by the, the premise of this binary question and this, this, divi this divisiveness. So I think the whole thing was profoundly unsatisfactory. Yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> but so the public service of ITV, by the way, does it really make sense to have two newses opposite each other all the time? I was watching ITV News last night thinking, 
why is this going on? Yeah, you know the history there, don't you? You know, Greg Dyke moved the BBC News from nine to ten o'clock. That's the history. I know. I suppose you could argue that it's forcing people to watch one news or the other to the extent well, that they watch BBC and ITV. Uh, yeah, it's a sort of, but it it's a, it's like a question, but it's a sort of fairly minor question because, you know, to get so frightfully het up about the schedule of BBC One and ITV is, is to forget that, that, you know, uh, well, to put it at its broadest. It's not how people watch. No, not just mm. that, not just that. The public service broadcasters have got to cooperate much more than compete with each other in the future. For the, for the betterment of public service broadcasting. That's the point. So it's sort of a fairly narrow subject about is one programme against another. I, I get a bit bored with it. And ITV, it makes commercial sense to carry on having the obligations of being a PSB broadcaster um, because what's the, the benefit is that prominence. Is that it? Because you could decide to give yeah. back the licence and just be a, 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 a digital broadcaster. Yeah, but... Um, so, I mean, there are two things here, you know, there's the technical discussion about what is the value of the license. And of course, it used to have a huge value when you had limited spectrum of course. and the Internet didn't exist and so on. And that value has come down and down. And there are various strange sums done by Ofcom about what it is worth. But that's sort of one slightly technical discussion. There's a different thing, which is what's in your DNA as an organisation. Mm. And the DNA of ITV, and I'm not distinguishing it here from Channel 4 or the BBC, the DNA of ITV is to make not just mass entertainment, but mass entertainment programmes with a public purpose. And that means, um, as I said earlier, what the soap operas do. And that means that national and regional news is, is essential. Now, but you could do all that as your DNA without having to take on the obligations. Well, of, that, of, those of, are, of, but, but those are the obligations. No, 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 but you could, you could decide that's what we're going to do and not be regulated in the same way if you didn't ha have the licence. Yeah, well, that, that's slightly perverse. If you're going to do what it is the regulator's asking you to do... But some of those regulations are a pain in the neck, aren't they? Well, actually, no, I don't entirely agree with that. Um, for instance, the regulation that we should have 25% independent producers... That seems to me a pretty healthy thing. The regulation that we should make half our programmes outside, outside, uh, outside London, that's a pretty healthy thing. We've got the, a major um, a production bases in Manchester and Leeds, and we've got 17 regional newsrooms and so on. Uh, those are pretty good, pretty good things to be doing, particularly um, when I talk about broadcasting or programmes of the public purpose. You know, we are sitting here in a cinema in Soho, and we will go home uh, to our London houses tonight, but... You know, and this was the case when I was at the Arts Council as well. Uh, London, uh, sorry, Britain has been far too London and South East centric. Uh, I personally welcome what Channel 4 is now doing. I welcome the fact Pact, I, I read the other day, is going to open an office in Leeds as well. Leeds is one of actually the eight creative... I wrote a report on how we could grow the creative industries to the government's industrial strategy. And my main proposal was we need to invest in creative clusters. One of those uh, being invested in is Leeds, and then Channel 4 is going there, PAC's opening, uh, opening up there. This is all good stuff. But so, um, the, the, um, you know, the, we, we need to... Um, spread the economic and the cultural investment, wealth, uh, uh, and all the rest of it across all the communities. So, no, all of these things are good, and you'd want to do them anyway if you were a responsible public company. So you, you wouldn't make more money if you freed yourself from some of those obligations? I don't actually at the moment believe that, that it is um, a, a, an economic argument, no. There are circumstances, as I said earlier, where if regulation became too onerous... 
I mean, look, you only have to open a newspaper any day of the week to find somebody who wants to ban something, right? And a lot of the things they want to ban are the things that are the lifeblood of our creative industry and pay for our programming, like certain advertisements. So um, if we were put under onerous regulation of the sort that some pr propose, that might necessitate a change. But at the moment, no, I think it's a good system. I think it's your turn to ask me a question now. Oh, really? <laughs> Let's talk about the fangs then. Oh, yeah, them. Good or bad thing? You, 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 your revenues this year, who's your biggest customer? Uh, Netflix and Amazon. <laughs> How could you, Stephen? <laughs> <laughs> How could you? How very could you? No, I mean, that's extraordinary change. So good, good, mean, good, or, good or bad, then? Well, it's good in as much as if you're a producer. I mean, let's start from the point of view of the producer. From the point of view of a producer, there are more buyers in the marketplace. There's more opportunity to sell your wares. Um, are they the best place to sell your wares? I mean, the deal isn't as good as selling to a British broadcaster where they only take UK rights and you have the ability to sell your tape or your format around the world. Um, Netflix is trying hard. The, the, with the show that we're doing, The, the Circle, we're, we're in their new scheme where they are paying a format fee, effectively, a premium, um, for each version to encourage us to bring a format that otherwise we would sell around the world, but we give them the global rights, and then each version they order, they, they pay a premium. So they're trying to replicate the, 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 the advantages of what we are normally used to, um, but it's still the best possible hit you can have, the best possible upside, is a show where you are able to sell the format of the tape around the world and one or two territories, maybe even just one, has paid for the original version of the show. This is all speaking entirely from the point of view of the economics of a, of, of a, of a producer. But. Are we talking about the public or are we talking about... I mean, we've touched on some of the um, public consequences of the emergence of, of Netflix and uh, Well, and actually, on news I was talking about Facebook. And, sure, yep. of course, but earlier on we were also talking. I mean, I do think some of the... One of the points I wanted to make was how crazy our, our, our attempts to regulate these things can, sometimes can be. We were talking before this started about the weird decision in retrospect of the fact that British broadcasters were going to come together and offer something that would have been a real competitor to Netflix and Amazon with Kangaroo. And it was, it was the regulator, the Competitions Commission. I mean, look back at it and you think, what an extraordinary decision. They said, oh, we can't let that happen. It would be detrimental to competition. I remember somebody I telling mean, me just, a joke about... So when we talk about the regulating of the internet, let's look what crazy decisions are made when you do start regulating. Well, it was the predecessor of the Competition and Markets Authority, the Competition Commission. I remember somebody once telling me when I was a kid about a dum-dum bird. And the dum-dum bird flies on its back because it only wants to know where it's been, it doesn't want to know where it's going. And the Competition Commission was fulfilling the historic role of the dum-dum bird because it was only regulating by what it knew had happened in the past. It had no idea what was going to happen in the future. But the future happened pretty quickly. So I think we quickly. can say Netflix and Amazon are great customers, great boon for consumers, fantastic for creatives to have that. Uh, I call them frenemies. You know, they compete with ITV for, for, for eyeballs, but they're one of our biggest customers as well, Netflix, and it's a wonderful thing. Now, I am empowered in this orgy of self-congratulation <laughs> to ask you a final question, and it is, what was your happiest moment in television? Oh, my God. <laughs> um, 
Well, actually, I did, I liked going to war zones and making documentaries uh, way back then. But I also, I mean, there's nothing... You're really a happy sort, aren't you? <laughs> but uh, I do actually think that coming up with ideas that are returnable and um, popular is much harder than making documentaries. I absolutely mean, agree with you. Going off and making documentaries about the Tamil Tigers <laughs> or whoever, British mercenaries in Croatia, was fascinating and very intense experience. But it's not anything like as intellectually demanding as trying to come up with something in a room with some people, or not in a room, wandering around, going for walks, trying to come up with something that is engaging, repeatable, generates enough variation so that you want to keep watching it, and is makeable within the constraints of a programme budget. So and that is such a so, hard so thing So getting do. a big audience is much more difficult than getting a small audience. Much. And I learned that because I was a researcher on That's Life, and my happiest moment was that moment I used to have to write Cyril. Do you remember cross-eyed Cyril in the chair? He used to read out the press cuttings. Well, I used to have to write his bits of it. You know, I had to go through the letters. I had the least important job in the room. Um, and my happiest moment in television is when I received a letter with a photograph in it. Cyril refused to do this, by the way. But it was a photograph of two billboards, which were contiguous. And the one on the left said, VD can be cured if treated early. And the one on the right said, I got it at the co-op. <laughs> <laughs> That was Sir Peter Bazalgette and Stephen Lamb. Thanks to them and to you for listening. Remember, you can catch up with all episodes of the Media Business Podcast at broadcastnow.co.uk, screendaily.com or wherever you get your podcasts. That's all for now. Don't forget to subscribe and listen out for our next episode later in the month. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.